Chapter 30 Once she had left Dr. Terry's office behind her, Stella was naturally anxious to take a look at the letters she had in hand. She wanted to compare them and look for connections between them, if any. Perhaps she would discover some kind of clue as to what sort of publications the letters and pictures had been cut from. This sort of information could lead her to the perpetrator. But before she did the research, she wanted a larger sample. Stella was concentrating so hard on the puzzle of the poison pen letters that she had to stop walking in order to think. Fists deep in her pockets, she paused just around the corner from Corridor Park. There, she asked herself three cogent questions. One, why didn't she want somebody responsible, like Cheryl, let's say, to take charge of this affair? Two, shouldn't she tell Cheryl that the Nodder's present medical condition was probably related to the shredded bits of paper that could well have been a letter like her own? And the weightiest question of all. Three. Why didn't she report to the director that somebody had sent her a picture of a serrated kitchen knife? Stella rounded the corner and was struck dumb by the sight of the four figures seated in Corridor Park. The nodder was one of them. She was sitting up straight between Iolith and Lucille and appeared to be entirely recovered already. Stella asked, Are you all right? Did you go to the hospital? The nodder shrugged. Stella was certain there had not been time to get the woman to the hospital, not to cover her up, wheel her out to an ambulance, drive her into town and back again. Stella asked, But you seemed so ill. She received no answer but for the expected nod. How right Dr. Terry had been about elderly people and their gift of bouncing back from attacks of ill health that had them looking ready for the winding sheet one hour and complaining about cold tea the next. As if she had read her mind, the nodder sent Stella a sideways look. In return, Stella sent the nodder a fairly sincere congratulatory smile. All the while, Iolanth and Lucille were stitching away on claws laid out across their laps. As Stella watched, Lucille held up a long thread for the nodder to snip. Across the way, next to the chair that was usually Stella's, Thelma sat with her back straight, tapping out a tuneless little song with her cane against the floor. Beyond her, Theo passed into and out of sight around the corner towards the dining room, no doubt on one of his long corridor walks. He gave no sign of their recent private moment with her slip-on shoe in the stairwell, his prince charming to her Cinderella. At that moment, looking from Theo to Thelma and the Greek chorus, each variously and boringly occupied, 
Stella saw clearly the reason why she didn't tell Cheryl about the letters. She didn't tell for the same reason that she hadn't gotten down on her hands and knees in the grass on Easter morning to help Junie find her eggs all those years ago, spoiling the Easter egg hunt for her daughter. Stella wanted to find those letters and the sender for herself. As she walked past the Greek chorus on her way to the seat under the skylight, the three of them looked up at her with that air of open-faced interest that always preceded some personal remark. Before Idleth could say anything terrible, and before Lucille could say anything worse, Stella got in first with a beautifully neutral question. Have any of you seen Ollie recently? Ireland shrugged. She exchanged a look with Lucille. That fella is why this place is going to the dogs. Right down the toilet, Lucille agreed. Straight through the pipes and out to sea. He's very nice, I think, Stella said. Never a sharp word, and does his job. And always willing to help, yes, Ireland interrupted. Still, don't you think there's something wrong with a man who's always smiling? Lucille said, He'd stand smiling over your coffin, that one. The nodder nodded. Stella looked sharply at the Greek chorus. If there was ever a set of nasty minds capable of sending a poison pen letter, but she remembered the nodder's tears and the torn-up paper on the table in front of her. These women were not the authors of the letters. A little further on, in her seat next to Stella's usual chair, Thelma parted her lips and emitted a sound so much like an old-time radio static that it took Stella a moment to twig that the blind woman was laughing. Stella grimaced and turned her back on Thelma and on the Greek chorus. She had walked right past Thelma before she registered the white paper corner showing in the pocket of the blind woman's red sweater. Stella bent down to straighten her sock again. Her hand flicked out to Thelma's pocket, and a moment later she was rounding the bend in the corridor leading towards the office. She clutched Thelma's envelope tightly in one hand. She had taken no more than a few steps past the corner when she heard the tapping sound on the floor behind her. Got what you want? Stelma stopped in her tracks. She didn't want to turn around. What if you were searching for an Easter egg and found a wasp's nest? She turned. She said, Thelma, I'm sorry. I took your letter. Something's gotten into me today. A bit of the devil himself, I'd say. Thelma made the static noise again. And you're only sorry because I caught you. Stella held out Thelma's envelope. Here, take it. Thelma shrugged. It's no earthly good to me. Keep it, since you want it so much. She turned and made her way back towards the corridor park. Red-faced, 
and shakier than she would have believed, Stella approached the secretary's desk next to the director's office. The desk stood empty as usual, but smack in the middle of it sat a white envelope. The letter was perfectly aligned, its corners squared off with the four corners of the desk. Stella glanced at Mrs. Perdetta Warren's door, but it was shut. She was alone, or not quite. One of the nameless ones, the care workers who Stella believed did not care, stood at the far end of the corridor. It was a risk, and one Stella would not perhaps have taken had the care worker's back not been turned her way. Since it was so, however, it would have been a sin to let the opportunity pass. Stella reached out and picked up the envelope. She saw Mrs. Warren's name picked out in cut-out letters and exhaled with a relief that such a coup on her part had not been seen by anybody. As she did so, she felt a light tap on her shoulder. Stella's heart nearly exploded out the breast of her jacket. She turned around. Don't do that to old people. Theo took a step back, surprise darkening his gentle gaze. He turned away, but she caught him by the arm. She said, I'm so sorry, Theo. I shouldn't have snapped. It was just so startling and... At the disappointed look in his eyes, her heart, which had leapt with shock a moment ago, now dropped to her shoes. With his free hand, he reached into his pocket, and he said, I thought you'd want this one, too. He took her hand and pressed an envelope into it. He turned without another word. Then, tall and straight, Theo strode back down towards the dining room. Stella stared at the envelope he had put in her hand. Theo, in cut-out magazine letters. She patted her pockets, totting them up. Cheryl's, Reliza's, Thelma's, the Dragon's, Mrs. Perdetta Warren's, Dr. Terry's, Theo's, and my own. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe we have a quorum. Chapter 31 Her pockets packed with the collection of letters she could scarcely wait to, wait to examine, Stella stepped back inside her own room. The door whispered shut behind her. Stella looked around for something to jam under the door to keep it closed. Yet such unusual behavior, if discovered, might appear suspicious and invite a lecture on safety and access to resident rooms for swift medical attention. Anyway, she had no reason to expect any visitors, and even if somebody, Ollie or Mad Cassandra, say, came barging in, there was no reason she should not be looking at some papers and envelopes. Stella was a tax-paying citizen and could look at papers all she liked. She walked over to her bed and perched upon it, digging in her jacket pockets for the letters she'd collected. As she set the pile beside her on her duvet cover, 
She thanked goodness that her single bed was not the very narrow sort that she remembered from early childhood. Not a small single where bits of you hung over the edge, one of your hands brushing the floor so that you woke in panic in the middle of the night. She recalled that the old army surplus cots had been the worst and would, without warning, fold up around you like the mouth of a giant clam and then spit you out into a tangle of sheets with the cot on top of you. The food might be execrable, but they let you bring with you a comfortable bed of a reasonable size. Turning, she raised one knee and then the other onto the bed. As she settled herself against the head of the bed, her feet up on the quilt in front of her, Stella bundled all the letters onto her lap. She noticed that she was humming to herself. It was a quiet, wordless little tune that was like the songs her daughter Junie had made up for herself when very young. She missed her daughter all the time, what parents didn't miss their children. But just now, it was an almost unbearably sharp pain that caught her in the center of her chest. It was not so much the eager little Easter egg gatherer that she longed for, but the grown woman Junie had become. Stella felt the loss of her daughter like a knife in her heart, and she scrubbed at her eyes with the heels of her hands. She said aloud, It's nothing new, Stella Ryman. You've missed her since she moved out on her own so long ago. No number of visits can make up for that loss. And another thing, it's lucky that you didn't know at 40 that you'd miss her just as much at 80. As the pain eased a little, Stella settled her knees at a more comfortable angle. She adjusted her glasses on her nose. With care, she removed the first unopened envelope from her pocket. For a brief moment, she considered steaming the envelope open to preserve its integrity as evidence, but decided against the move as not worth the trouble. She was not likely to be asked to testify in court. She set this envelope down on her lap next to the envelope she herself had received. On the first envelope, her own, her name was composed not of individual letters as she had first imagined, but of cut out groups of letters, each group of a slightly different size. The spelling was put together rather cleverly, Stella decided, as if the perpetrator had thought it out so as to use as few separate bits as possible, an S, a TEL, and an A, all of them black and white, and each group of a slightly different size. Next, running her thumb over the edges of the cutout letters of Thelma's name, she judged that the letters on this second envelope had, like the first, been cut from a magazine and not a newspaper unless from one of those annoying, shiny inserts that had to be separated from newsprint for recycling. Whoever had cut the letters and glued them onto the envelope had used a red word, the, a blue, L, and a black, ma. 
satisfied with the lettering and that nothing and that there was nothing more to tell her she slid her thumb under the triangle of Thelma's envelope as the flap of paper came free Stella noticed once again the lack of glue on two-thirds of the flap only the rounded point and an inch on either side had glue not an office envelope then she had ripped open enough of those stuck-down suckers to know one when she saw it. She took a closer look at the front of the envelope. She hadn't noticed it earlier, but near the bottom edge of the envelope was a line with six small empty squares separated into groups of three. Some greeting card companies used to print these little boxes on their envelopes to encourage people to use their postal codes. But they had long ago stopped this practice, which Stella had always thought smacked just a little of Big Brother in the Orwellian sense. But it showed that this was not just any Christmas card envelope, but a very old one, perhaps more than 30 years old. And why should such a small discovery give her such great satisfaction? After all, the scowling mind that had selected it was unlikely to have given a moment's thought to the type of envelope he or she had used for the purpose. But Stella did feel intensely gratified by this bit of deduction. She looked closely at the other envelope. As she examined it, the thought came to her that if you looked at those envelopes when they were first printed 30 years ago, and these same envelopes now, they looked just the same. They had not even yellowed with time. But if you looked at Stella 30 years ago, and Stella now, there had been many superficial changes over that time. Stella sighed. Oh well, the envelopes had probably been languishing in a box all those years. If she had been kept in a box, she too might show less wear and tear. The author of the letters must be a very practical person to use a box of old Christmas card envelopes all together in a bunch was clever. If stolen, they were unlikely to be missed. Knowing this about the sender was in some small way a victory. Stella took a deep breath. She wished she could see the sender's face, not for identification purposes, but to see the expression on it now that Stella had figured out the first of the sender's secrets. Send me a picture of a serrated knife, will you? Stella asked the heir. I believe you have underestimated your enemy. Stella found this last sentence so pleasurable to utter that as she pulled Thelma's letter out of the envelope, she said it again. Chapter 32 Even though she must have read a thousand mysteries in her time, at least a thousand, for those sorts of reads were as pleasurable and uncountable as the number of excellent cups of tea one had drunk, Stella was unexpectedly nervous about opening Thelma's letter. Perhaps it was only excitement, but somehow studying these papers up close 
made her see how unlikely it was for her to solve a case in real life. There were so many possibilities, so many people to interview. She felt suddenly like a combination of the hapless Captain Hastings, the excitable Watson, and one of Miss Marple's gormless upstairs maids. She wished she had a sidekick, like the cheeky Archie Godwin, who would do the legwork and bring the information home for Nero Wolfe to cogitate upon. Soldier on, Stella. From inside the envelope that had been meant for Thelma, she pulled out the blind woman's letter. She had been expecting a sheet of paper with a picture glued on it, and she was not disappointed. That being acknowledged, she didn't know what to make of the picture. It made no sense. Two eyes stared back at her from the center of the piece of paper. Two eyes turquoise in color and heavily lashed. Pupils large and matte black. What did this picture mean? Had the author of these letters sent a pair of eyes in an attempt to torment a blind woman? Stella let out a noisy breath. Was that not like putting fish in the water to drown? Frowning, she put Thelma's letter down on the duvet where the bright eyes could stare at the ceiling and pulled the next item out of her bunch of letters and envelopes. This one was already opened, and she set it upside down on her lap. Before turning it over, she smoothed it out. She was entirely engaged in wondering what she would see. She was like a child, she thought, confronted with presents under a tree. An adult might shake a box and say, Hmm, pajamas, or I bet this is another walk. But a child doesn't want to guess. She just stands stock still in a moment of wonder. A child embraced the moment. Stella enjoyed this one, although she was aware that the surprise when she turned it over might well be very nasty. She turned the letter over. She noted the damp spots at the edge and she could smell coffee on it. This was one of the two she had pulled from the staff room trash bin. She looked closely at the picture glued in the center. A picture of a plastic striped bandage. Stella frowned. It was just the sort of plain band-aid that she used to plaster on Junie's knee or elbow after a hard day at the swings. I receive a serrated knife? And this one shows a band-aid? Stung by the inequity of the malice involved and concerned about the connection of bandages to knife wounds, Stella pulled up the next letter. In the center of this page was glued the picture of a young woman being embraced by a separately glued-on picture of a young man. This letter was also coffee-stained, and so it too was meant either for Cheryl or Eliza. It was not likely to be Ollie's. Or it might, she supposed, belong to one of the nameless deers 
the other care workers who took their break times in the staff room. Estella held the paper out in front of her and looked more closely at it. The woman pictured was young, dark-haired, and lovely in her bones. The man had something around his neck. As it was too thin for a necktie, she supposed it might be a bolo tie, which seemed ridiculous in the circumstances. But a moment's thought brought the answer. The thing hanging around the man's neck was a stethoscope. This was a picture of a young woman about to be kissed by a picture of a doctor. For crying out loud, Stella snapped that picture down on top of the picture of the turquoise eyes. Then she picked the same letter up again. Perhaps there was a dangerous edge to what looked like every mother's romantic dream for her daughter. Although Stella had known a few doctors in her time, and so had never wished that fate on Junie. Perhaps, in a place like Fairmount Manor, such a relationship could result in the loss of a job. Of course, she did not approve of this letter showing an illicit kiss, but it made her feel a little less like the only true object of malice in the case. Stella wiggled her legs on the bed, they wanted to stick out like doll's legs, and her feet seemed a long way off. Stella glared at her slip-ons. They bulged in an unhappy way at the sides, a little like riding jog furs. Then she returned to the envelopes at hand. She wanted to lay them all out together on the bed, but her legs were taking up too much room. Gone were the days when she could fold her legs over to the side or sit cross-legged on the floor and deal out solitaire hands in front of her. But, she said, the hell with it. She thought Holmes would say the same, and left the letters on her thighs in an untidy pile. She pulled up the next one and read the name on the envelope. First name and last, this one, Perdetta Warren. The letters were uniformly black, and smaller in size, but then there were more of them to fit across the envelope. Inside it was the poison pen letter meant for the head of Fairmount Manor. Stella felt a leap of curiosity and fumbled with the flap at the back. Just at that moment, the door to her room opened an inch or so. Somebody rapped. Stella said in a voice, she hardly recognized as her own. Don't come in. I'm almost dressed. The door clicked closed. She slipped the letters under her thighs and bunched her quilt up around her. She took a moment to check fore and aft that no papery bits were in view. As she clasped one hand inside the other to stop the trembling, she reminded herself about the trick in dealing with the staff here at Fairmount Manor. If they came up to you and wanted you to go somewhere, bingo quite often, and you said you weren't quite ready, they went away and left you alone. Often they never came back. It worked especially well on the nameless dears, those care workers who were 
kind on the trot, their eye on the next one in line needing helpfulness. Another tap sounded at the door. I wanted to ask you something, dear. It's about your visit to the office a little while ago. What about her visit? Nobody had seen her take the envelope. Of that she was certain. Stella said, Um, really not ready at all. Okay, a woman's voice called. Neither Cheryl nor Eliza's voice. I'll come back later. Were footsteps moving away down the corridor, or was she imagining the sound? With an intensity that seemed to sharpen her mind and cause her lungs to shrink inside her chest, she peered across the room at the door handle. It didn't move. Not the slightest wiggle to show that somebody was standing outside room 34, ready to enter without further warning. The nameless woman had gone. Without taking her eye off the door, Stella reached for the letters under her legs. As she placed the pile on top of her lap, she heard a bump outside. Then the handle moved suddenly. She froze. There was a quick rap, and the door opened wide. What? she asked. She let her legs open and close again to cover the pile of papers. Then she saw who it was that filled the doorway, and she said, Sorry, Ollie, I shouldn't snap. Not unless you're made of elastic bands, Ollie responded with a grin. I've got a message for you. Mrs. Warren is looking for you. Thanks, Ollie, she told him. He winked and closed the door as he left. With care, Stella inhaled, filling her lungs to capacity. As slowly, she allowed her breath to resume normal service. Then, she pulled the letters back up, the directors on top. This should be interesting. She read the envelope again. Perdita Warren. Without a warning knock or even the rattle of the handle, the door opened. There in the doorway stood Mrs. Perdetta Warren herself. She stared from Stella to the letters on her lap and in her hand. Stella thought, folly.